Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 will be in verses 26 to 31 this morning. And while you're turning there, uh, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's class. So those who are participating in that class can meet your volunteer leaders there at the uh, back room, and they will be there uh, waiting for you. Again, everyone else will be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, as we continue our journey through the book of Hebrews. Of course, we've taken a few weeks off through the holiday season, and so now we're jumping back in right here in the middle of Hebrews 10. So as we do every week, I'll read our passage for us, and then we will pause and pray and ask for the Lord's help before we dive into his word together. So Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray together. Father, there is a great weight that lies upon us as we read this passage this morning. It's not something that's fun to be reminded of, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of your judgment. But Father, you've not called us to only think about or meditate on or preach on or read the portions of your scripture that, that we like or that we think are easy. And so, Father, we are asking for your help this morning as we must come underneath the truth and authority of this weighty and difficult passage. And so, Father, we pray as we do every week, but particularly this morning, Father, we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit You have promised us because of the finished work of your son, because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for all those who trust in him, you have promised to send your spirit to dwell in us. And so, Father, we are calling on you and pleading for you to be at work through the power of your spirit this morning through the truth of your word. Father, I I pray that this passage would land on the ears of your people as it needs to for each individual. And there are different people here this morning who need to hear this passage in different ways. And so I pray that you would give me the wisdom and all of us the wisdom 
to proclaim your truth and to let your spirit do his work within us. And so, Father, we pray that you would use this to bring conviction, to, to help us fight against sin, to feel the weight of our sin, to create a desire in us in this new year to put those sins to death in our life. I pray that this passage would turn our gaze upward, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, our only hope, and our all-sufficient sacrifice and Savior. And so, Father, I ask for your help. I ask that you would allow me to preach your word and to speak only what is true of you and what is true of your scriptures for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after reading that passage, those few verses, 26 through 31, I don't think I need to do the work of, convince, of convincing any of you that this is a weighty portion of the book of Hebrews. It is one of a handful of warning, what are typically referred to as warning passages in Hebrews. And the challenge of preaching these kinds of passages, there's this one, there's another in chapter 6, there's a few of these in Hebrews and, and other New Testament books. But the, the challenge of preaching a passage like this is that there are two potentially, potentially two dangerous ways people hear passages like this. And it creates a challenge for me pastorally as I preach it and think about preaching this passage. So here's the, the two dangerous ways people can hear this passage. First, the first way. The first is a group of people who are genuine Christians, who are trusting in Jesus Christ, but who are struggling with some particular habitual sin. And they hear this passage and it destroys their confidence in the finished work of Jesus. It destroys their assurance of salvation. And they leave here questioning whether they know Jesus at all, when in fact they actually do. However, the other dangerous group, the other dangerous way to hear this passage, is that there are those who have with their lives, with the proven pattern of their lives, proved that they have rejected Jesus, whether they consciously realize it or not. It's that group who thinks they are Christians because maybe they grew up in the church, because maybe they were manipulated or deceived into making some kind of nod-the-head decision as a child, but there's nothing in their life that demonstrates the fruit of the gospel. They are guilty of ongoing, deliberate, unrepentant, habitual sin. But they will hear this passage this morning and think that these warnings do not apply to them because they see themselves as Christians. And my challenge as I preach this passage is to allow the weight of the warning to land on everyone and for the Spirit of God to do his work. The challenge is not to soften the blow in such a way that it doesn't land squarely on those it ought to, and at the very same time, not preach in a way that everyone leaves here convinced they never knew Jesus to begin with. 
Nevertheless, it's a warning that we all need to hear. And I say we because I'm including myself in that statement. It's a warning we all need to hear. It's a warning we all need to struggle with. It's a warning that is intended to be used of God to turn our gaze to the final and complete sacrificial work of Christ on the cross. Now, having said all of that, I just want to begin this morning by making what will sound like an over-the-top dramatic statement. But my hope is that we'll spend, my prayer is that we'll spend the rest of this morning convincing you that it's just a true statement. And here's the, what could be viewed as an over-the-top statement. We should tremble at the prospect of missing church. We should tremble at the prospect of missing church. Now, I know that may sound dramatic, or maybe it sounds like I'm one of those hellfire and brimstone preachers who's trying to scare you into regular church attendance, but regardless of whatever it may sound like, even if it does sound dramatic, even if it does sound over the top, even if it does even sound manipulative, what matters is what the Bible says. And so I'm asking us this morning, is this passage teaching us that we should tremble at the prospect of missing church? So let's simply do what we do every week and work our way through this passage one section at a time and see what the Lord is saying to us. But before we get into this passage, 26 through 31, let's be sure we remember what has gotten us to this point in chapter 10. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's been about three weeks since we've been in Hebrews and since we've been in Hebrews 2. And so I just want to be sure we, we get a running start into this passage because 26 through 31 is intimately connected to what comes before it. And I'll show you that in a moment. So let's just remind ourselves, let's do a quick review of what we have seen in chapter 10. The first half of chapter 10 just continues what Hebrews has been teaching us for the last few chapters. It continues to establish the fact that the finished work of Christ on the cross in his, in his life and in his death was, his death was the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. That it was the final and complete sacrifice that renders all the sacrifices unnecessary and brings an end to the sacrificial system. In fact, chapter 10 verse 12 says to us, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. The work was over. It was done. It was finished, just as Jesus said on the cross. And then verse uh, 14 goes on to say, For by a single offering, that of himself, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It is the finished and the complete work of Jesus. So, in verse 19 of chapter 10, the author tells us that because of the work of Christ, we can have confidence to enter the holy places, meaning we can have confidence to approach God, to have a relationship with our God because our sins have been atoned for and paid for. And in light of that, 
verses 22 through 24 give us three commands we looked at a few weeks back that we are to do into response in response to the finished work of Jesus. We are to, verse 22, draw near with, with a true heart. We are to draw near to God because Christ has opened the way. We can draw near to our Heavenly Father. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That's the second response we saw there. We are to hold fast to this confession, to the truth of the gospel without swerving or wavering. And then finally, we saw in verse 24 that we are to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And we saw that that word consider is the real command there. We are to consider one another. We are to think about each other. We are to get to know one another in such a way that we can stir each other up to love and, and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together because you can't know each other if you're not gathering with each other. You can't spur one another along if you're not with each other. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day being the last day, the day of judgment. That every morning when we wake up, it is closer to us than it was before. The day is, in fact, drawing near. Now, it's the last command, that final command in verses 24 and 25 that I want us to be sure we remember where God is commanding us, as I said, to know one another well, to, to provoke one another, to stir up one another, to love and to good works and to not neglect gathering together as God's people. It's a, it's a command from God. This is what he has called us to there in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 10. And so I ask, why? why? Why do you and I need to be committed to a local body of believers? Why do we need to be committed in such a way that we will not neglect to meet together? Why do we need to know one another well enough to stir each other up to love and good works and to encourage one another? What is the ultimate reason that the author of Hebrews gave us these commands? Well, the answer comes in verses 26 through 31. You see that simple three-letter word at the beginning of verse 26? For or because. In other words, in verses 26 through 31, the author is telling us why it's so important that we commit ourselves to a local body of believers. So let me, let me even maybe paraphrase it to make it a little bit more clear what, what is being said here. Let us not neglect to meet together because if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You see, the warning of verses 26 through 31 is giving us the reasons why we need to be committed to a local body of believers. Which brings me back to my original statement that we should tremble at the prospect of missing church or to say it less provocatively and probably a little bit more accurately we should tremble at the thought of neglecting to attend church there will be times 
you need to miss church, right? You're going to be sick. You're going to be out of town. So I'm not saying you should tremble in fear every time you're not here, but we should tremble. We should tremble at the thought of neglecting to gather with God's people. And in verses 26 through 31, the author of Hebrews is giving us three reasons why that's true. So let's look at each of those reasons one at a time, but here they are before we dive into them individually. Reason number one, we risk falling into unrepentant sin. When we neglect together with God's people, we risk falling into unrepentant sin. Number two, we risk a more severe punishment. We risk a more severe punishment. And number three, we risk falling into the hands of the living God. We risk falling into unrepentant sin. We risk a more severe punishment. We risk falling into the hands of the living God. So, so reason number one, we should tremble at the thought of neglecting to gather with God's people is that we risk falling into unrepentant sin. Look there with me again at verses 26 and 27 of Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now remember, the author of Hebrews is building on verses 24 and 25. He's giving us the foundation, the reason for the command to not neglect gathering together with God's people. And the foundation, the reason he lays underneath that is he, he seems to be saying that gathering regularly with God's people helps us fight against the temptation to be guilty of ongoing deliberate sin. That's the connection between verses 24 and 25 and 26. I hope you see it there, right? Don't neglect to meet together because if you go on sinning deliberately, there are severe consequences, meaning the gathering with God's people is what God has given you to help you fight against sin and to not fall into that habitual temptation to be an unrepentant, ongoing, deliberate sin. In other words, God has given us the local church and brothers and sisters who, Lord willing, are pursuing uh, us and pursuing a relationship with us and want to know us and love us well enough to spur us along to love and good works and to encourage us so that we don't get caught up in ongoing, habitual, unrepentant uh, deliberate sin. Now, that leads us to a really important question, of course, which is what does the author mean when he says that this is for those who go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth? So what does it mean to go on sinning deliberately? Well, in the original language, this word is in the present tense, which means it is an ongoing action. It is a habit of your life. That's why it's translated there, go on sinning. It's something you continually do. And it's something you continually do deliberately. So what does the author mean by deliberately? Well, it seems to be a reference that uh, to the Old Testament and the Old Testament law 
And this distinction that the Old Testament law made between unintentional sins or mistakes and intentional and deliberate sins. The perhaps best example of this is in Numbers chapter 15. We'll reference Numbers 15 a few times. But here's the first one. Numbers 15 verses 27 through 30. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him. And he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, meaning intentionally, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people." So there is a distinction that even the Old Testament law made between this unintentional sin and intentional sin, this ongoing, deliberate, unrepentant, rebellious sin, and the sin struggle that each of us experience every single day. There is a distinction between those two things. So verse 26 seems to be referring to those who intentionally, deliberately pursue sin on a habitual or continual basis without repentance, remorse, or confession. They are living as if the finished work of Christ on the cross has no real impact on their lives. In no sense are they living their lives as a new creation, as a child of God in their habitual ongoing sin. And if you are guilty of such things, then verses 26 and 27 say there are serious consequences. And there are serious consequences, verse 26 says, for a particular group of people. Do you see what it says? For if we go on sitting deliberately after we have received the knowledge of the truth. So what does it mean? Who are these people who have received the knowledge of the truth? It is referring to those who have some kind of head knowledge of spiritual things. They have been around the people of God. We saw this earlier in Hebrews chapter 6. It's the sense of you're, you're among the church. You're, you've maybe grown up in the church, but you never really trusted in Christ. So you've been around it enough to, to know facts about the gospel. You've been exposed to the truth of the gospel. You, you have a knowledge of the truth, Right? You've received this knowledge of truth. You're aware of the Bible's calling your life to live a life of repentance and, and battle against sin. You're aware of the invitation to trust in Christ as your Savior. And this is really important to point out because what this clarifies is that this warning, these warnings that we are reading, this passage that we are reading this morning is not for those people out there. It's for the people in here. For those who have a knowledge of the truth. You see, this is one of the great dangers of the culture wars. 
is it drives you to spend so much time thinking about the sins of other people, that other group of people that you don't, you forget, you become blind to, and you don't deal with the sins in your own life. And I love that even the author of Hebrews lumps himself in to this, to this group that is being addressed, right? You see that in verse 26, for if we go on sinning. That this is a warning for believers. This is a warning for those who are a part of God's people who have been exposed to the truth. So if you go on with unrepentant, deliberate, habitual sin, then verse 26 says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And instead, verse 27 says, you should have a full expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So how can there no longer be a sacrifice for sins? What in the world does the author of Hebrews mean by that? Because we've spent chapter upon chapter of the book of Hebrews saying there is a sacrifice for sins, right? There is a final and complete sacrifice for sins in the person of Jesus Christ. So what does he mean when he says that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But remember, he is addressing this group of first century Jews who have turned to Christianity. Right? It's written to the Hebrews, to the Jewish people, and to, to these believers who were a part of this Jewish community, who the sacrificial system had been ingrained into everything they are, the whole pattern of their lives, and now they've come out of that, and they're, they're in this church, right? And and he's given them this warning because we've seen this throughout the book of Hebrews that they're facing persecution. They're, they're facing trials and tribulations. And there's a real temptation for them to go back to their old way of life, to go back to what they did before, to go back to their Jewish community. And he says, look, if you do that, if you go on sinning deliberately, if you walk away from this, if you reject Christ and live as if his sacrifice makes no difference in your life and you keep on pursuing intentional sin... If you leave him behind, then there is no other sacrifice for sin. There no longer remains a sacrifice. If you don't take Jesus, there's nowhere else to turn because the blood of goats and bulls cannot take away your sin. That's what he means when he says in verse 26 that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's saying to us, you basically have two options. You could trust in Christ and his final complete sacrifice and his full wrath-taking work on the cross where he stood in your place, you can trust in that sacrifice or you can walk away from him, you can reject him, you can refuse to believe in him, but if you do that, your sin remains on you. And therefore God's wrath remains on you. There no longer remains a sacrifice. Instead, what remains on you is an expectation of judgment. Remember verse 25. This is, again, another connection between this call to not neglect meeting together. He says in verse 25, Don't neglect meeting to, to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day of that 
expectation of judgment, the day of that fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You see what verse 26 is, uh, sorry, what verse 27 is saying is that when you reject Christ, when you turn away from Christ, when you refuse to trust in Christ, you are placed into the category of an adversary of God. You remain his enemy. And so you should expect his judgment and the fury of fire that will come for all of his enemies. The warning could not be more clear. Don't fool yourself into thinking you belong to Jesus and are trusting in his sacrifice if at the very same time you are guilty of ongoing, unrepentant, habitual, and deliberate sin. If that is true of you, then what God says to us, not what I say, what God says to us in verse 27 is that you should not expect forgiveness. You should expect that judgment will fall on you. That's what God's word says to us. But at the very same time, God's word says to us that the main way you can fight against that that the main way you can work toward that not being true of you, the way you protect yourself from falling into that habitual unrepentant sin is by regularly gathering with God's people. It's why there's no category in the Bible for the lone wolf Christian who's off doing their own thing. We need each other. I need you. You need me. You need the people sitting around you because the world is calling you to sin. Satan is working and manipulating this world, calling you away from Jesus every single day. They are against you. He is a, a roaming lion seeking someone to devour, Peter says to us. It's why we gather every Sunday. It's why we do our life groups so that we can, in the middle of the week, continue to call each other to holiness, continue to call each other to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to push each other toward holiness and love and good works. In other words, if you're going to be serious about fighting sin in your life, then you must be serious about the local church. That's not Pastor Jonathan saying that, that's God saying that in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, I, I just, I do want to be clear here. And again, I said this is the challenge of preaching this passage. As believers, all of us are going to struggle with sin. We will not fully put sin to death until the day we gaze at Jesus. Till we see him as he is, face to face. So this passage is not saying, I'm not saying that if you go home this afternoon and you find your heart filled with pride once again for the fifth day in a row, that you're lost and it's over and done with, right? That's not what I'm saying. This is a category of people who have an indifference to the gospel, and that indifference manifests itself in a refusal to pursue holiness. 
in a refusal to be repentant of your ongoing sin, in a complete lack of guilt or remorse about your sin. Look, if you are struggling with sin, that in and of itself is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work within you. That's him bringing conviction upon you. But yet, even so, this warning lands upon us. And so, look, I would encourage you in two different directions. I would encourage you to not lay this to the side too easily. And at the same time, I'd encourage you to work this out with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And Life Group this week would be a great opportunity to do that. Talk through what this looks like in your life. What could deliberate ongoing sin look like in someone's life? This is something we need to have conversations about. So if you are concerned that this is true of you, or even if it could be true of you, then look, come talk to me after service. I'll be down here as I am every week. Talk to each other. Call each other. Talk in life group Monday night and Tuesday night. Don't, don't let a day pass without working this out. Let this warning land on us. But as if the warning of 26 and 27 isn't enough, the, the author continues to up the stakes with the second reason we should tremble at the prospect of neglecting to meet together. And that is because, number two, we risk a more severe punishment. Look at verses 28 and 29. Here the author is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. Verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? How much worse punishment? Now, the author is reaching back into the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, there in verse 28, and he says, look, there in the law of Moses, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses, who just with complete indifference disregards the law of Moses, dies without mercy. In other words, there is no opportunity to go offer a lamb on the altar. No, you are executed. And the rest of Numbers 15 that we read earlier plays out an example of that. So uh, I'm going to read a, a, a longer portion that I would normally read from another spot of Scripture. So if you want to turn there, you can. But if not, just listen along to Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 through 41. Numbers 15, beginning in verse 30. We'll, we'll pick up kind of where we left off in the last Numbers 15 passage. But the person who does anything with a high hand, again, intentionally, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Now, immediately, Numbers 15 then goes into giving an example of this person. So listen to Numbers 15, verse 32. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, <clears throat> they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. 
All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. So when the author of Hebrews says in verse 29, or sorry, verse 28, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy, this is the kind of thing he's talking about. There was no opportunity for this man to say he was sorry or to, uh, to, to present a sacrifice at the altar. No, instead he was sentenced to death. Now that doesn't mean he was condemned to hell, but it means there was no opportunity for him to escape capital punishment under the Old Testament law. There was no sacrificial lamb to be offered in place of this high-handed sin. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now as we <clears throat> read that, it sounds terrible to the modern mind, right? It's stories like this where we say, where people say, the, God, the Old Testament is a God of wrath. He's evil and wicked and cruel. And <clears throat> the God of the New Testament is so much different, right? This Old Testament God of wrath, this New Testament God of love, they, they pit these two senses of God against each other. They have trouble reconciling this kind of instruction from God to execute a man who is picking up sticks on the Sabbath. It feels like, to, to many, it feels like two different gods. God calling for the execution of this man, and yet Jesus is dining with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. What's the reconciliation? And though I'm sympathetic to those who genuinely struggle with that, I am, I'm sympathetic, and it's a, those are good questions to ask. What I want to make clear to you this morning is that you can't read the passage we're reading and claim that the Old Testament God was a God of wrath, but not the New Testament God. Because what does verse 29 say in the New Testament? How much worse punishment will this person receive than the man who was stoned for gathering sticks on the Sabbath. After the birth of Jesus, after the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, after the proclamation of the good news of the gospel, how much worse will it be? And it is worse for a specific category of people. So what we're going to see in verse 29 is the author of Hebrews giving us a further explanation of, of who these people are and what they are like who go on sinning deliberately. There are three descriptions that are given for us there in verse 29. They trample underfoot the Son of God. They profane the blood of the covenant. And they outrage the Spirit of grace. So let's just take this one at a time and be sure we understand what the author of Hebrews is saying about those who should expect a much worse punishment than death. That is an eternal death, separated from God in hell, facing his eternal wrath and condemnation. Who are these people? Number one, they have trampled underfoot the Son of God. 
They have trampled underfoot the Son of God. This is all the more cruel and wicked because we are reminded that God in his victory through Jesus is, uh, Jesus is awaiting. You see that in chapter 10, verse 13. He's waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. And yet there are people who so neglect and mock and reject Jesus Christ that it is as if they are taking him and grinding him into the ground like mixing seed in the dirt. Trampling underfoot, this phrase was used in a Greek literature to refer to pigs walking over seed, trampling it into the ground. It's like you're treating Jesus like he's nothing more than trash on the ground to be mixed into the filthy dirt. Trampling underfoot the Son of God. The Son of God who Hebrews has told us is the glorious one. The Son of God through whom God has now spoken to us. The Son of God through whom all things were created. The Son of God who is the exact representation of his nature and, and who is the imprint of his nature. The, the, the Son of God who holds the universe together. It is him that when we go on sinning deliberately, when we reject him and, and turn our backs on the offer of the gospel, we are trampling him under our feet treating him as garbage. Not only that, they profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. The word profane here means to treat as common. To take the holy, glorious, precious blood of Jesus Christ and treat it like it's the blood of a goat. To treat it like common, ordinary Blood. They have profaned the blood of God. They have acted as if the, uh, the blood of Jesus, they have acted as if the blood of the covenant, the blood spilled by Jesus on the cross is not powerful enough to change their lives, to give their devotion to, to fall down on their knees and worship him and give their lives to Jesus Christ. No, they have profaned it. Now this brings us to perhaps the most difficult phrase in this passage it says that this person has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. So does this mean that someone can be sanctified and lose their salvation? <clears throat> How do we deal with this statement? Well, there are three basic ways that it could be dealt with, but I would argue one, if not two of them, are non-starters. One is someone could argue, well, this person was a Christian. They then turned their back on God and walked away from him, and they're no longer a Christian. They lose their salvation. But the testimony of Scripture is overwhelmingly clear that once you become a child of God, he will not turn his back on you. He will keep you to the very end. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Philippians 1.6, uh, 1 Thessalonians, he who called you is faithful, he will do it. Or there's even right here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In the work of Jesus, when you place your faith in Jesus, when you genuinely repent of your sin and turn to Christ, you become an adopted child of God and he will never turn his back on you. 
So that's not what it means when it says he is sanctified, uh, uh, the blood of the covenant by which he has been sanctified. Option number two, some try to stretch forth that this is simply a hypothetical situation. <clears throat> that if a believer were able to reject Christ, that, <clears throat> that he would be profaning the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. But we all know that can't really happen. Which I don't think is the case either. It is a warning with no teeth. It is a warning without meaning ultimately. It would be like me saying to you that if you go out of here and on your drive home, if you go 250 miles an hour on 540, you're going to prison. Now that might be true, but nobody in here has a car that can go 250 miles an hour, right? And so they say, well, it's a hypothetical. It could be true, but it's not going to happen. And you would think, well, I don't have to worry about that warning because I can't do that anyway. No, this, this warning is for us this morning. It's not a hypothetical. It's real. It's why it's here. So then, what does he mean? Well, I think what he means is that we, there's a sense in which those who are among God's people are sanctified in the sense of being set apart. If you are a part of God's people in the sense of you, you attend church, you're around the things of God, you, you hear the gospel, you're taught God's word regularly, there's a sense in which that privileges you with a position of being set apart from the rest of the world. And when you live as if the blood of the covenant has accomplished nothing in your life, when you reject that Christ you have heard of, when you reject the truth that you've been taught week in and week out, you have profaned the blood of the covenant and you have proven with your life that you never belong to Jesus to, be, uh, to Jesus to begin with. That's what 1 John says to us. 1 John chapter 2, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would not have gone out from us but they went out from us to show that they are not all of us. There are those who are among God's people who will by their lives prove that they never belong to him in the first place. That's why Jesus says to us, there will be those who will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, I never knew you. It is those who never, were never known by Jesus, but maybe thought they were, who profaned the blood of the covenant by which they have been set apart. And then finally, these people at the end of verse 29, they outrage the spirit of grace. Most translations, most scholars would lean toward interpreting that as insults. I tend to lean that way as well, that you insult the spirit of grace. It's not something that the spirit of grace is doing to you, that they are, he is acting in rage towards you, though that would certainly be fitting and true. But it's more of in line with the rest of these, these descriptions that you trample underfoot the Son of God. You profane the blood of the covenant. You insult the spirit of grace, the spirit who is nothing but gracious toward you, and yet you turn your back on him and reject him. And what the author of Hebrews is saying to us is that when these things are true of you, 
If you are someone who is trampling underfoot the Son of God, if you are someone who is profaning the blood of the covenant and insulting the Spirit of grace, you are rejecting the work of Christ and full-on pursuing your sins in an ongoing, deliberate, intentional, habitual, unrepentant manner, then what you should expect is a much worse punishment than came to those in the Old Testament. And it says we know this because we know the God in verse 30 who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God always does what he says, friends. He will repay. The Lord will judge his people. And that brings us to the final reason we should tremble at not gathering with God's people. Number three, we risk falling into the hands of the living God. What a weighty warning this is in verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, in some contexts, it could sound like a positive thing to fall into the hands of the living God, right? You have the old, the old footprints poem, right? You have two footprints and then there was one. It's because Jesus was carrying you, right? That's a good way to fall into the hands of Jesus. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the hands of God's wrath, his judgment, his condemnation. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands, the judge hands, the wrathful hands, the condemning hands of the living God. Make no mistake about it. The author of Hebrews wants us to hear this warning, to feel this warning, and in hearing this warning, he wants us to never have to face it. Right? That's why it's here. It's here so that you will fight against sin and put sin to death in your life. He wants this reminder to ring in our head when we're faced with temptation, when we want to just give in to that sin again, the warning is here like, don't do it, right? Don't keep doing it. At some point, you're going to go over the ledge. You're going to prove that you never had Jesus to begin with. Don't presume upon the grace of God. This warning is for you. And it should be ringing in your head. So if there's any verse you memorize this week or this year, memorize this one. I give you permission to ignore the fighter verse we're going to read at the end, right? Drill this into your head. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And may you hear it in your heart and in your soul every time the temptation arises in your heart. And may that fear drive us to the cross. May it drive us to Jesus. And the sanctifying power of meditating on the gospel and meditating on the reality that Jesus came and dwelt among us and he lived a perfect righteous life in our place. And even though we struggle with sin, we will be judged by his righteousness on the last day. It is imputed to us. We are clothed in it. And let, may it drive us to meditate on the work of Christ on the cross where he took on God's wrath and suffered in our place. And may we never trample him underfoot and treat his blood as common and live our lives as if he doesn't matter. And may it drive us to not neglect gathering with God's people and realizing we need each other. Look, this is why I love preaching through books of the Bible for many reasons. One, 
It's not fun to preach these kinds of verses, but we need them. And number two, if we're not moving through books of the Bible, I don't think we would see the connection that the author of Hebrews is telling us between gathering with God's people and the risk of falling into unrepentant sin and the judgment that comes as a result of it. But here it is, friends. Church attendance isn't just a good idea. Being committed to a local church isn't just a nice thing. It is a necessary thing. And so let's not play games with it because I don't want this to be true of any of you. And the author of Hebrews did not feel that the Hebrews were yet there, right? It's for if we go on sinning deliberately. And he's saying this because he's saying, let's not do it. (laughs) Let's not fall into that trap, brothers and sisters. Let's fight against it together for our good and for the glory of God. We need the local church to call us to obedience, to remind us weekly of the gospel, and even monthly, even as we will do this morning, to rehearse the gospel together through communion and the Lord's table, and to be reminded of the finished work of Christ and the precious blood and broken body that stands in our place. Let's pray together. Father, I just feel a burden right now to to pray for your people, to pray for my own heart. Father, this warning is so easy to cast it to the side as if it doesn't apply to me, if it doesn't apply to those sitting among us. And so, Father, I just pray that by your grace to us and by the power of your spirit that you would allow each of us to wrestle with this passage individually. May we spend time evaluating our lives. I pray that we can do that in community with each other. And I pray that ultimately Satan would deceive no one in this room. That you would allow no one to leave here deceived thinking that they belong to you when they don't, when you don't know them at all. And for those people, Father, I pray that this passage would bring them to repentance, that they would come to faith in Christ and trust in him for the first time. And Father, for others um, for whom this is not true, for whom are trusting in Christ, who belong to you, I pray that these warnings will drive them even closer to your heart, that it will drive them to draw near to you that it will drive them to to not play with sin. I pray it will drive me to not play with sin and to make light of it in my own life. So Father, I pray that your word would sanctify us this morning, that it would change us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.